This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we're going to dip our toes into a series of episodes about the goings-on of 1938. 1938 was a year of great turmoil in Hollywood. It was a year when movie exhibitors branded some of the biggest stars of the decade, including Marlena Dietrich, Katherine Hepburn, and Greta Garbo, as box office poison. Beginning in 1937, the entire industry headed into a recession that was separate from the Great Depression. In July 1938, the U.S. Justice Department filed an antitrust lawsuit against eight Hollywood studios, which would eventually result in the forced ending of vertical integration, meaning that the studios who produced and distributed the movies had to essentially get out of the exhibition business. This would entail the disappearance of a revenue stream, which, in 1938, it didn't look like Hollywood could afford to lose. With the rise of radio and other distractions, the public's interest in movies seemed to be waning, to the extent that the still young film industry went into an existential panic. They had to prove that they weren't just a fad. The public had turned away from movies in either apathy or disgust, because according to one studio executive, there was a pervasive feeling that, quote, the movies are on the downgrade, that it is a great risk to buy a movie ticket with all of the chances against getting your money's worth, that Hollywood is nuts, that the stars are poison, that show business is racing to hell, end quote. Some of this panic might sound familiar, particularly the notion that there was a coming new generation of would-be moviegoers who hadn't picked up the habit of actually going to the movies, in part because they were so distracted by other forms of media. Just as today's studios attempt to find those potential customers where they live by bombarding social networks with 
assets, sometimes seeming to spend money and expend focus on anything to get the viewer's attention, anything that is except for making better movies, the movie makers, the studios, and theater owners of 1938 banded together to launch a massive PR campaign, a million-dollar blitz encompassing the releases of 94 different films over a four-month period, designed to lure lapsed and virgin moviegoers to theaters by any means necessary. Any means, that is, other than actually making better movies. They called it Motion Pictures Greatest Year. Unfortunately, it was not actually the motion picture's greatest year. Join us, won't you, as we explore one of Hollywood's most impressive feats of false advertising in the first of a series of episodes on the state of Hollywood in 1938. The motion picture's greatest year campaign was a bold attempt to respond to a number of problems plaguing the film industry in the late 1930s, but the biggest problem was that audiences no longer seemed to care. Box office receipts had gone up in 1936, and studios had raised their production budgets accordingly. But then, attendance dropped, and by early 1938, forecasters were predicting the worst summer movie season in the industry's short history. Moviegoers felt that they had been burned by disappointment one too many times. As mogul-turned-indie producer Samuel Goldwyn put it, "'People used to be afraid to go to the movies because they thought they might see one bad picture.' Now, with double bills, they're staying away because they fear they'll see two. On May 3rd, a group of independent exhibitors took out a now infamous ad in The Hollywood Reporter, blaming the industry's crisis on the studio's reliance on well-paid stars. The ad called out seven actors and actresses by name, whose, quote, dramatic ability is unquestioned, but whose box office draw is nil. We'll talk about this ad at length in a future episode, but suffice it to say, the declaration of beloved glamour girls such as Joan Crawford as, quote, box office poison had an outsized impact for what essentially was and should have remained the insidiest of all inside baseball calls, partially because it seemed to give lie to one of the few certainties the industry had established, that proven stars served as a kind of insurance policy against weak material. Over the next few weeks, the press was full of hand-wringing and finger-pointing. There was much speculation that broke-ass, depression-era audiences had turned against Hollywood because it's so tightly held to the fantasies of impossible glamour which it basically invented two decades earlier and which were now passe. It got so bad that Harry Warner of Warner Brothers publicly slammed his fellow studios for hoarding their good movies for the fall season, a sin he vowed not to commit with his Errol Flynn pick, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The industry infighting had calmed down by July 1938, when hundreds of reps from all areas of the industry gathered in New York to hammer out the final details of a joint effort to change the conversation. The Motion Picture's Greatest Year campaign 
would encompass advertising in newspapers, on movie screens and in lobbies, all designed to up theater attendance by selling a slogan. Movies are your best entertainment. Theaters were tasked with distributing booklets containing multiple choice quiz questions regarding each of the 94 films released between September and December. And moviegoers were enticed to participate, which meant going to see and answering questions about a minimum of 30 films in four months, with the promise of cash prizes. This type of bribery in itself was everyday stuff during the Depression, but the Greatest Year campaign went further. It wasn't just about getting millions of people to see 30 movies over the course of four months. It was about changing the way those millions of people thought about moviegoing by encouraging repeat attendance as a kind of sport and cinephilia as a kind of responsibility, like hygiene or voting. Ads for the contest implored patrons to get the habit and stressed that this habit was a respite from the harsh, drab reality of their everyday lives. Moviegoing thus became branded as both something you really should do as an upstanding citizen, and also a break away from the drudgery of all your other responsibilities. Newspaper columnists were pressed into service penning editorials, advocating the centrality of moviegoing to American life and to the nation's overall economic recovery. Moviegoing got people into the habit of looking at things contained in a frame, and relating those things to their own lives. The hope was that they'd walk out of a movie theater still in that mindset, and then the Main Street store windows full of merchandise, more or less the same shape as the movie screen, would compel the same type of gaze, the same type of longing. And even if they didn't, patrons were made to feel good about spending what cash they had on the movies themselves. Both editorials and ads purchased by the campaign stressed that each motion picture employed hundreds of craftsmen, meaning that movies made jobs, and that was good for the economy. Part of the goal of the whole campaign was to legitimize movie making as an industry like any other. It wasn't like any other, of course. For one thing, the movie industry was subjected to extraordinary, constant criticism from both its own trade papers and the mainstream media, to an extent never experienced by, say, the steel industry. And partially because of the constant stream of coverage, accurate and otherwise, Hollywood in the 1930s had a reputation as this madcap place where stars, drunks and loonies, the lot of them, were puppets whose strings were pulled by larger-than-life moguls who made decisions based on hunches, intuition, superstition, and thus the entire industry's profits were totally unpredictable. Hollywood hoped that spending money on this campaign would send the message to the business world that the industry didn't consider itself to be a flash in the pan, but was looking ahead to generations of consumers in the future. They couldn't exactly claim that what they did was a science, it wasn't, but they could foreground the engineering that went into creating products that pleased their customers, as well as the fact that, as good capitalists, market history dictated their future moves. And so the Greatest Year campaign put much emphasis on the audience as empowered consumers who helped to steer the content made by the movie industry with their buying power and their feedback. The campaign wasn't launched until September, and it wasn't even thought up until midway through the year, and subsequently applied to films that were already finished or in various stages of production. Those movies included examples from all genres, musicals like the Ginger Rogers Fed Astaire vehicle Carefree, westerns, 
crime pictures, new installments in series films, or what we would today call franchises, like Mr. Moto, the Spencer Tracy Mickey Rooney juvenile delinquency issue movie Boys Town, big budget period pieces like the Norma Shearer starring Marie Antoinette, independent productions by the likes of David O. Selznick, and Frank Capra's You Can't Take It With You, that year's Oscar winner for Best Picture. This was popular, prestigious stuff, but there was also over 80 other movies involved in the campaign, a lot of them forgotten flicks like The Cowboy and the Lady and Too Hot to Handle, which were branded as an example of Hollywood's greatness regardless of their actual quality or even their intended quality. Just the fact that Hollywood made A-movies and B-movies at this time was starting to draw the ire of critics of the industry, who pointed out the sheer gall of advertising half your products as being inferior to the other half. As the campaign pointed out, many of these films stressed a more realistic ideal, telling stories that more closely resemble the average viewer's own domestic dramas, but that certainly wasn't true of every movie. Marie Antoinette was a massive production, and it lost a massive amount of money. In hindsight, the big tent approach of the campaign seems like a misstep. But at the time, the campaign's organizers thought that emphasizing the industry's wide range of product would act as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Genre itself was developed as a way of having it both ways, of satisfying the audience's simultaneous desire for familiarity and novelty. With the Greatest Year campaign, Hollywood came up with an ingenious way of indemnifying themselves from real criticism by encouraging superficial criticism. Ads for the campaign stressed that while each film would not appeal to everyone, within the 94 films, there would be something for every taste. And they encouraged viewers to debate the merits of each movie with their friends. One ad included an elaborate metaphor about pie. One man may love apple pie, and not be able to comprehend how anyone could not have a taste for it. His friend might feel the same way about liver and onions. If you prefer liver and onions to apple pie, that's your preference, and you're welcome to have it. But you can hardly blame the pie. Essentially, the ads flattered a viewer's opinionated individuality, while at the same time sending the message that it wasn't the movie's fault if you didn't like it. At this point, you may be asking yourself, why haven't I heard about this before? Maybe it's because when we do talk about movies of the 1930s, usually we're focused on other things. The evolution of the talkie, the wave of great stars who came into prominence to replace the silent stars who faded away, the institution of self-censorship via Will Hayes' production code administration. Or maybe it's because the campaign didn't work. Some journalists were snide about it from the beginning. In his column, Walter Winchell snarked that the slogan, Movies Are Your Best Entertainment, translated into the acronym, MAYBE. Hedda Hopper was one of many to point out that the enormous price tag of a campaign intended to tell the public that movies were great might have been better spent actually making movies great. But much of the press was initially supportive, especially after they could cite inflated Labor Day weekend ticket sales as evidence of the campaign's success. And to be fair, some of the campaign films did exactly what they needed to do. 
Boys Town, the Spencer Tracy Mickey Rooney charity home drama, more than quadrupled its budget at the box office and won Tracy an Oscar. It was, in many ways, the embodiment of what the campaign promised as a family-friendly, not glamour-dependent and yet still entertaining movie about something like real life. You Can't Take It With You, the Frank Capra film, which won Best Picture at the Oscars, is another example of a movie which seemed to hit all of the MPGY marks. But we'll talk about that in a future episode. Unfortunately, these were the exceptions rather than the rule. Big spending studio MGM lost over a million and a half dollars on three pricey campaign films, including Marie Antoinette. Only because of the massive success of Boys Town did they end up in the black. On the whole, the public was hardly electrified by the campaign, though over 32 million quiz booklets were distributed to moviegoers. Only 2 million filled out quiz books were actually submitted in compliance with the contest. And then, it was discovered that the books had been printed with a number of factual errors, making it virtually impossible to answer at least five of the questions correctly, and worse, giving off the impression that the people in charge of the contest hadn't even taken the time to watch the movies. By the time the cash prizes were handed out, the promised $250,000 bounty was divided among so many winners that some runners-up didn't even make back the price of their movie tickets. At the time, the Motion Picture's Greatest Year campaign looked like a folly that failed to do nearly enough in terms of measurable public perception turnaround to justify its cost. Though there were great movies released in America in 1938, many of them had nothing to do with the campaign. The official umbrella of Motion Picture's Greatest Year didn't cover 1938 release Grand Illusion, which wasn't a Hollywood production, or two Katherine Hepburn Cary Grant vehicles, Bringing Up Baby and Holiday, which were considered flops in their time. And given the films released in 1939, including The Wizard of Oz, Ninochka, Stagecoach, Gun Gadin, The Women, Young Mr. Lincoln, and longtime box office champ Gone with the Wind, in hindsight, maybe if Hollywood had waited a year to crow about their greatness, they would not have had to protest quite so much. We will learn much more about the films, stars, and scandals of 1938 in future episodes. Tonight, we'll leave you with one of the sounds of box office poison. Here's Marlena Dietrich in 1938. Like the bubbles in a glass of champagne Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's micro-episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. You can find out more information about this episode and past episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And please subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast in iTunes. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. you see that this never can be? You go to my head with a 
smile that makes my temperature rise. 